You know, one of my first duties here at Ecclesia when I went on staff back in 2010 was to assist pastors in weddings. Now, uh, we used to do a number of weddings, and we still do, but not to the degree what we did in those first couple years. I think in those first couple years uh, that I assisted, I think I assisted almost 40 weddings between two pastors. So uh, during that time, though, you, I learned real quickly what was very important in a wedding and what was not very important. Uh, first, there was very, four very important people that would be part of every wedding. Uh, the first one would be the bride, of course. She's been dreaming about this her whole life. She's anticipated this. There's expectations. And so the, wed- the bride was vitally important. Second would be the groom, her Prince Charming, the one who she was going to become married to, and they would build a life together in this process. The third one was an officiant. You always need an officiant for a wedding to take place because you need somebody to facilitate and to take them through this process. And fourth, for some of you, this may be a surprise, is a wedding planner or a wedding executor, the day of person, because every wedding has a situation that arises. If you become very intimate into a wedding process, something happens, something doesn't go right, and it's usually the wedding planner who takes care of it. Otherwise, the bride, the groom, and their family get involved in that, and it usually doesn't go over very well. So those are four important people. But then there's some very important parts to each ceremony. You obviously have a bride who walks down the aisle, and usually her dad or somebody else uh, gives her away. Uh, there's usually vows that are shared, rings that are exchanged, and then the culmination of every ceremony is the kiss and the excitement that is built around that from the family and the friends. Now, a couple years uh, into working at Ecclesia, I took a trip to Burkina Faso in West Africa where we partner with our friend Marcel and we're training pastors on how to teach through books of the Bible. And through that process, we've done a variety of different things, from going over for two weeks, teaching through an entire book in those two weeks with about 200 pastors, and then they take that book back to their church, and then they continue to disciple their church in a very highly uh, illiterate culture where the people depend upon their pastors for the scriptures being uh, proclaimed. Now, as well, we've also built a Bible college, and we're currently sponsoring about 200 pastors every three years and uh, investing in them and sending them out to plant churches or to uh, strengthen the churches that they're already a part of. But on this particular trip, uh, it was probably my second trip over there, I had just been teaching through the book of Genesis with a couple other people. And I had just finished on a Friday afternoon teaching on Isaac and Rebecca and the two becoming one and then the marriage that took place there. And uh, it's very fascinating that a guy that's single would be teaching on that pastor to a bunch of married guys, but, you know, uh, that's the way that the straws drew and, and that's the passage I ended up teaching on. But the next day I was going to a wedding in Burkina and I was super excited. I'd just been to a number of uh, American traditional Western weddings, but I had not been to one in Burkina. And so I was excited to kind of see what those looked like. Well, in that process of being on my way there, uh, Marcel came to pick me up the, on Saturday morning, and he said to me two questions, two questions he had for me. The first one was, do you trust me? Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been asked that question, instantly you're going, uh, I don't know if I can trust you right now. And Marcel and I had been through a number of things, and so I'm like, I flew halfway around the world. You're the only person who speaks the same language I do. You're my transportation. I mean, really, I'm fully dependent upon you for my survival. So, um, yes, I trust you. Second thing he says to me in his question, he goes, will you do whatever I ask you to do? I don't know about you, but if you've ever been asked that question, 
you're become extremely skeptical about what's going to happen. And so I'm going through in my head, we've been in car accidents together. Uh, we've been closer to Al-Qaeda than I ever want to be in my entire life again, uh, literally bumping shoulders, uh, being so close to a man with leprosy that you could literally see them going on. And I'm going, wow, what are the ramifications of that? And so here I am going, okay, Marcel, what are you asking me to do? He says, I want you to officiate this wedding that starts in 15 minutes. I've never been to, I've never officiated a wedding before, and so now I'm being asked to officiate this wedding, and uh, so I'm quickly, frantically going, well, I'm single, doesn't matter. Uh, well, uh, and I couldn't come up with an excuse well enough that he would, because he wasn't going to take no for an answer, so I ended up officiating this wedding after 15 minutes finding out about it and finding out that there's going to be over 400 people at this wedding because he told him a week before that an American would officiate this wedding. That's Africa, so uh, that's just the way it rolls. So, uh, and it's one of many stories that I have with Marcel where he puts me in those positions. So here we are, we go to this wedding, and there's some, there's some similarities to, you know, what we'd experience in the traditional Western wedding. You know, you have a bride and a groom who dress up, there's uh, vows that are, and rings that are exchanged, uh, but then there's also some parts that are very different. You know, our ceremonies are usually about 40 minutes, theirs are three hours. Receptions are about six hours minimum, um, and you know there's a whole process there where everybody who's in attendance has a participation. Whether you can sing or not, you're going to sing a solo at some point during that ceremony, so you just got to get used to it. I mean, you have groomsmen, bridesmaids, maid of honor, best man, all of them have solos. You have aunts and uncles that have solos. You have uh, the the family members of the bride and the groom each have solos. I mean, everybody in attendance. So now you understand why it can take three hours when there's 400 people for people to participate in this. And then I go through the whole ceremony. At the end of the ceremony, I'm told I need to greet everybody. And I'm like, okay, well, I just say hi to everybody. No, you line up in a line and everybody's single file and they come up and every male you have to hug and every female you have to do the cheek to cheek thing. So left cheek, right cheek, left cheek. And I'm a pretty affectionate guy, but I'll be honest. I had my bubble burst that day, and I don't ever want to be that close to that many people ever in my life again based upon how many people I just uh, did cheek to cheek with. So uh, that being said, we come to a passage this morning that is involved Jesus going to a wedding. And there's some similarities to a Western wedding or a Burkina wedding, but there's also some significant differences here. And a situation arises at this wedding, like every wedding has happened, and they have to deal with it. So looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see the wedding invitation. We see the wedding invitation take place. On the, the day, third day, we're a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So it's been three days since uh, Jesus has called Philip and Nathaniel to follow him as his followers, of, as becoming followers of Jesus. Steve taught that passage last week. If you missed it, you can check it out online. But then uh, they're in Cana of Galilee. This is the hometown of Nathaniel, which is believed. And so uh, it was right there and it makes sense. And they go to this wedding. And in those days, a wedding didn't just last 40 minutes or three hours. It was a seven-day process. And it would begin on the wedding day when it finally came, and the groom and his uh, wedding party would leave 
his, the groom's father's house, and there would be singing and dancing, and if, it, if the procession happened at night, then it would be led with a torch, and there would be all this excitement build up, and they would go to the bride's father's house, and they would gain the blessing of the father and the mother and the rest of the bride's family, and then the whole wedding party would go back towards the groom's father's house with singing and dancing and musicians and just excitement, and they consummate the marriage that night, and then the celebration would continue for another whole seven days. Talk about trying to get some time off to go to a wedding, if you'd ask me. <laughs> now, after that, it was not just, uh, in the Western traditional mindset, the uh, bride's family was responsible for paying it. Uh, for, in the first century, it was the groom's family that would pay for this wedding, and there was a certain standard by which you had to uh, pull off this wedding, otherwise, the groom and the bride and the groom's family would all be shamed in society if they did not meet this standard. And then as well, if they didn't meet this standard, the, the bride's family could actually pursue legal action against the groom's family for not meeting a particular standard. So what you can see here is that this social gathering was a big deal. That this social event was a major part of society in the day and age, and the permanence that would take place when a wedding would come into the play. And there was this guest list that John tells us who was there. So Mary was invited, this is the mother of Jesus, and most likely uh, she was, had close ties with the groom's family because she played a major role in the catering that took place for this wedding. You had Jesus, uh, chances are he was a close relative or close friend of the groom's family because of the role he plays. And then Jesus' disciples also go with him. We're talking about Andrew and Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and then John was also with them. So all of these people are in attendance. They're invited to this wedding. They show up, and guess what? Like every wedding, a situation arises. There's a wedding situation that happens, and I've been a part of weddings where, you know, the groom's, one of the groomsmen pants doesn't match the rest of the groomsmen. Groomsmen pants rip. Uh, one wedding uh, was a pastor, and he forgot the wedding license. That's a big deal uh, there. Uh, been through ones where family tension that arises, and so you've got to take care of these situations. So how does Mary and Jesus respond when the wedding tension arises? When the wine ran out, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. When the wine runs out, which this was the drink of choice in their day and age, so wine was a very popular drink. They needed it for the purification of the water because it was contaminated if it was standard water. And so juice without refrigeration and a hot climate would become an alcoholic beverage through the fermentation process, and people loved to drink wine. And so uh, it was about the equivalent of a little less than a, a beer as far as alcoholic uh, levels there, but this was a very important thing in this process. And uh, Mary goes, oh no, we ran out of wine, and so she brings it to Jesus' attention and says, we have no wine. Now, she doesn't just bring this to his attention because he's the oldest, the firstborn child here, but because she knew who he was. She knew who she was told he would be. She had started to see these things unfold in his life, and so she knew who he was. And I want you to see a number of these passages that talk about this. So before Jesus has ever come on the scene, before Mary even knows about Jesus, an angel appears to her in Luke chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke chapter one, verse 30. If you don't, I think we've got it on the screen for you. 
And the angel said to her, she's just a teenage girl going about her business. She's uh, kind of engaged to her husband-to-be. And this angel appears to her and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have been found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, a term and a phrase reserved for God. And the Lord God will be, give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary's like, wow, this is incredible. What an honor of position to have. There's only one problem, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I've never known a man. I've never been with a man. How am I going to have a child? Verse 35, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So there's this proclamation that there's gonna be this immaculate conception that takes place. One like no other birth has ever taken place. And he says that he's gonna be the son of God and that's why this immaculate conception has to take place. So there's this proclamation by an angel before Jesus has ever come onto the scene. But then Jesus is born 10 months later and he's in this uh, manger and the shepherds have an encounter with the angels in Luke chapter two. Turn with me to Luke chapter two, verse 10, one page over. And the angel said to them, as the shepherds are just minding their own business, taking care of their flock, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those whom he is pleased. Fast forward to verse 18. So they go when they find this manger, they find this baby, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Verse 19, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. I don't know about you, but when my wife had a baby, or we're gonna have a baby in February, she's excited to be able to claim this, and then you have a whole bunch of shepherds show up and, and make this proclamation, like you're gonna store these things away, you're gonna write those down in the baby book, okay? Fast forward, they get ready to take Jesus to the temple uh, to dedicate him, and on the way, they meet Simeon, verse 25 of chapter two. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord. Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servants depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of re- for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is posed and the sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. All of a sudden, they're just headed in to dedicate their child. This this takes place and they marvel at it. 
And then as they're getting ready to continue on, a prophetess named Anna shows up, verse 38. And coming up, at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's excitement there. Turn with me to one more passage on the wise men, Matthew chapter two. It's uh, two books to your left. And the wise men find out about it, and they're on their way. They wanna meet this baby. The wise men, people of authority and positions of authority, and they have this, so they have access into Herod, the king at the time's uh, house. And so they come in in verse six of chapter two of Matthew and say this, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Fast forward uh, to verse 10. So they go and they find this baby in a manger. They find Mary. When they saw the star, verse 10, and rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So you have these people of prominence, these people of authority, these wealthy people, and they're bowing down and worshiping a baby. Imagine being Jesus' mom, and you're just taking these things in, and they bring out these gifts, which were symbolic but had impactful meaning and that she would be very well aware of. Gold, which was for a king, which was reserved for a king. And then you had frankincense, which was a perfume used and reserved for a deity and a sign of a god. What does this mean? And then you have myrrh, which was an embalming oil, which was used for death. A king, God, and death. All of these things Mary has treasured in her heart. And for 30-some years, they've been stored up. She's been anticipating it. She's been excited about it. And then all of a sudden, as we get back into John chapter 2, there's this anticipation. There's an excitement around this. Jesus starts doing things. People start following him. People are proclaiming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus' own mother goes, it's time to do something. It's time to, to take this problem that we're facing in this wedding and the shame that this couple is about ready to go through. And he says, let's do something. They ran out of wine. But notice Jesus' response here, verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if my mom in desperation over a big event uh, comes to me and says, Ian, I need your help, and I respond to her as, woman, you better believe I'm going to be in big trouble. <laughs> if I call her woman, that's a derogatory, demeaning word. But in Jesus' day and age, it was actually the opposite. It was a, a word used for affection. It was a restorative word. It was a, a word that brought closeness and intimacy in a relationship. We see this in John chapter seven. The story is there's a woman caught in the very act of adultery and the religious leaders grab her out of this very act and throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say, should this woman be stoned because it says you should not commit adultery? And Jesus gets down in the sand, down on her level and begins to write in the dirt. And the accusers that brought her there, start walking away one by one by one. And Jesus pulls up her chin and looks her in the eye and says, woman, where are your accusers? You see that restoration, that affection, that personal connection that takes place there? And then he also uses this term in John chapter 19, verse 26. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. 
He's bled, he's been beaten, he's been bruised, mocked, spit upon, and he's hanging there and his mom is sitting down at the foot of the cross, standing next to Apostle John. And he says, woman, behold your son, pointing at John. And he looks at John and says, John, behold your mom. Jesus is saying here, take care of my mom. I love my mom. I desire my mom to be taken care of, and John, I'm entrusting her to you. So this is, a, this is not a, a you know, distant word that's trying to like create animosity in this relationship. It's, it's a word that shows affection and respect for this person. And so Jesus has this relationship, but there's a transition in this relationship. And Jesus asks this question with a slight rebuke because he, he realizes that he's not just her son anymore, he's also her Messiah. You see, there's a transition in relationship with here, and he's trying to communicate that to his mom and to, to bring a little correction there so that she can allow him to become who God has fully called him to be. And there's a transition in every child's life at some point to where they have to be given the opportunity to thrive and to come alive. And as, child, as children, we have to do this in a way that is honoring and respectful to the parents who have raised us no matter what type of childhood you grew up in. Because Jesus models that for you and I. And so she does this, and she, she allows him to do it in this way. Uh, he also says here, my hour has not yet come in verse four. So what is he referring to? Is he referring to a specific amount of time, or is he referring to a specific event? He's referring to the event of the cross. He's referring to the very suffering and death that he would endure on the cross. And John uses this phrase over and over as Jesus recounts it throughout the Gospel of John. For example, in chapter seven, verse 30, it says this. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. So you're, you're, they're saying you can't even arrest Jesus because it's outside of the very hour that God had willed for him to go to the cross. Same idea in chapter eight, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then there's this transition in chapter 12 where his hour does appear and he does head towards Jerusalem and heads towards the cross. In chapter 12, verse 23, it says this. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Chapter 12, verse 27 says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me for this hour. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. This was the hour that Jesus' whole purpose was made to live, where he would go to the cross, where he would endure punishment that he did not deserve in his perfection, that he would endure uh, broken and fractured relationships from his disciples between his father in that moment when he goes to the cross. You see, one of the things that we've learned over the last nine months is people's interpretation of what's been going on politically and with this virus is it's caused fractured relationships. It's called brokenness in families, leaving some people isolated, leaving some people hurt. And every family is dealing with this to some degree. And what that is a picture towards is it's a picture towards this need for redemption. It's this picture towards a need for Jesus. 
Because this is what we are personally dealing with, but it's a picture of the chasm that was developed between a holy, perfect God and imperfect people that could not bridge that gap because of sin. And so Jesus goes upon that cross. He hangs upon that cross. And through that sacrificial death that he pays, and he stands in your place, and he endures the wrath of God, and what God gives to you and I in return is his righteousness. So that when we stand before the judge someday, he doesn't see us in our sin, but he sees us holy. He calls you perfect. He calls you a part of his royal priesthood. He calls you redeemed. He calls you forgiven. He calls you reconciled. He says, I'm your substitution. I'm the payment for your penalty. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are redeemed. You get to call out to me as Abba, Father. That, my friends, is the very hour and the very purpose of why Jesus came. And if you don't know that message, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then today is the day that I pray that you believe in him and begin to follow him because this was the whole purpose why he came. And maybe this is the whole purpose why you came this morning is that so you would believe and trust in Jesus. Back to John chapter two. Back to John chapter two. So what this, Mary's response is this in verse five. His mother said to the servants, the wait staff, do whatever he tells you. Mary starts to recognize that this relationship really did have to change, that she was not just his mother anymore, but now he is her Messiah, that she allows him, she's equipped him, she's raised him, but now she's called to empower him into the world, to become all that the Heavenly Father has called him to be. And if she didn't allow him to do that, then he wouldn't be able to fully fulfill the plan and purpose that God had for him for the redemption of humanity. And the truth is for us as parents, and eventually there's gonna come a day where we have to release our children. Yes, we want them to come fully dependent upon us at a young age where we, we change diapers and we take care of them and we're up with them late at night and all of this takes place, but eventually we're going to have to release them and empower them into this world so that they can find a dependence upon Christ similar to a dependence that they found on us. And if they don't find a dependence upon Christ, then there's a hindrance and there's a block there that they're missing out on becoming fully who God has called them to be. And that's a hard transition to make, but it's an important one that we can learn from Mary as well. So here's the wedding supply, verses six through 10. Let's see this. Now, there was six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So here's 120 to 180 gallons of this water that was used to clean the utensils and the plates and the silverware, the cups, and then also before every meal, the wedding guests would also go wash their hands there, so for the cleanliness there. And Jesus says to them after he sees it, to the wait staff, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So he took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people had drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus tells him, hey, go, go fill this to the brim and then go open it up and, and pour it out and fill up this wine and then go take it to the head waiter here 
and then take a sip of it. And he's so amazed at it, he takes it to the bridegroom, and there's this excitement over the fact that this is the best wine that they've tasted, that this is incredible. That they're like, wow, when most people will serve the best wine, and then when people get intoxicated or inebriated, then we'll, we'll give out the poor wine or the cheap wine to keep people con- satisfied and happy. But you save the best for last. Now, what's important to know, because I know there's a variety of us with different backgrounds here, is this is not an endorsement to getting drunk. This is not an endorsement to becoming intoxicated, tipsy, buzz, whatever the popular word for getting drunk is today. This is what we call a descriptive passage in the Bible, where it's just describing an event that took place. There's also prescriptive passages, passages that are prescribing a certain way of life to us. An example of that would be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18 says this, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, which means that there is a, a, a point to where alcohol will begin to take an influence upon you and could inebriate you and you lose control of yourself and your filter and the Holy Spirit then loses control. Whereas if you are not drunk, then the Holy Spirit can have maintain control of you and give you guidance and direction with the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, so there's a contrast there. That's that picture that is to be there. And if this is a struggle for you, if this is something that has become uh, an issue for you and you're dealing with this and you're finding this becoming more of a habit than you, I encourage you to reach out because we as a church would love to meet you with love and to get you connected with people in our church that have the ability and the gifts to be able to help you navigate this. I just had a conversation like this this last week with somebody in our church and got him connected with our leadership and celebrate recovery. So there's this, there's this ability to be able to help people through this, Okay. But here's what the miracle just is, is incredible to me. Okay, the cheapest wine, I looked this up, takes a minimum of six weeks to make. And it's, it's pretty cheap. The most expensive wine's like 20 plus years. Jesus just took the most expensive type of wine and transform, or made the most expensive type of wine in a matter of seconds, if not minutes. This is significant. This is amazing. And the wait staff, the disciples, and Jesus' mom witness it. Now, here's the significance of it in verses 11 and 12. This, the first, this was the first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. See, this was the first of the signs that confirmed and validated who Jesus was. It was this validation that he was the Messiah, that he was God, and it was a sign. You know, the purpose of a sign is to draw your attention to it, but then to point your attention to something greater around it. So chances are, if you drove here this morning, you had to stop at a red sign that said stop on it, right? You slow all the way down, you don't do the California stop, you come to complete halt, and then it doesn't, you're not just staring at it the whole time, but you're looking at the stop sign, and then you're looking around for something that could be greater. Maybe a person walking across the street or another car coming in another direction, right? Another sign. Uh, Here's one. If you are having a car coming behind you that has blue and red lights, that's a sign that there's emergency taking place. So this last week, we're headed back from Salem, visiting some family, and all of a sudden, there's five cop cars zooming up past us as we're pulling over on the side of the road, and my four-year-old goes, Dad, somebody's getting arrested. And it's true, like that's literally what happened. The sign of that was taking place with the red and the blue lights. 
And when you come up and you come up and you see that there's nine cop cars and there's a guy in handcuffs, it shows you something that was greater than significance than just the red and white or red and blue lights. So that's the sign here. And so Jesus does this miracle as a sign, not to just, you know, pull away the shame that this couple was about ready to endure, but he does this to validate his deity, to validate that he is God. And that there's this great anticipation, there's this great expectation in their day and age that God was about ready to do it. There was a stirring taking place. And all of a sudden, how do people respond when water is turned into wine? I mean, wine doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's a long process. There's five basic steps to wine being created. You ready for this? There's five basic steps. There's the harvesting. So you gotta go out and and pick these berries. You gotta pick out the best ones and you gotta put it in there. And then the second part of that is the crushing and pressing of these berries. And so that process takes time. And then there's the fermentation process. You know where the, the berries begin, or the grapes begin to uh, ferment, and that's where the alcohol comes out of it. And then as well, there's also the clarification where you get the liquid and separate it from the pulpy stuff. And then there's the aging and the bottling process. Okay, remember the good stuff is like 20 plus years for that to take place. And Jesus just did it in seconds. Do you see how incredible that is? How impactful that is? How amazing that is? This was the first miracle done since God had created flour and oil in the day of Elijah and Elisha. So there was this anticipation. There was this expectation building. And how do the people respond? The wait staff who would witness this, what happens to them? As you read through verse 12, They leave and they head to Capernaum. It says nothing about the waitstaff believing. It says nothing about the waitstaff responding and being impacted by that. What that means is they witnessed the miracle and missed the Messiah. As a waitstaff, they were grateful for it because it took some of the pressure off of it. They were entertained by it, but it didn't affect the way that they lived. It It didn't change the direction and purposes of their life. And when I look at that, I go, how many of us are like this wait staff? We read about a miracle where water's turned into wine, and we're like, wow, that's incredible. Harvesting, pressing, fermentation, clarification, bottling, all of that takes place in a matter of seconds, and they serve it. That's incredible. And then we leave here. But it's it's not impacted our life. We're not recognizing him as God in our everyday life. We're not allowing him to be God in every area of our life. And we're like, we don't allow him to be God of our marriage. Don't allow him to be God of our work. We don't allow him to be God of our relationships. We don't allow him to be God of our, our computers. All of these different things. We don't allow him to be God in these areas. And we're not being impacted. The second thing that this does is it puts him on display as his, the fact that he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one promised. He's the one that all these people pointed to and told Mary that he was the one promised to them. And when you, when you hear this and you have a guy like John the Baptist who last week tells uh, all of his disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it validates this. And for, for the disciples, those who followed him, they believed, it says in verse 11. They followed him. Their lives had been drastically changed Some of them were fishermen, and now they become fishers of men. Their whole purpose and identity had changed. 
Because the reality is, is when you are confronted with the Messiah and you, you embrace the Messiah, your identity and your purpose and your desires change. The shackles of sin disappear. The pursuit of sin becomes less and less and the pursuit of your savior becomes more and more. And this impact and this drive impacts our life. And when I look back and I look at this, you know, for some of us, I was talking to one guy a couple weeks ago and he's like, 2020 has been one of the most freeing and impactful year I've ever had on my walk with Christ. I've taken ownership of it. I've dealt with sin that I've been hidden behind and, and that I thought I was just gonna live through life all along with. And I'm experiencing freedom like I've never uh, endured before. For others of us, you know, you say, go 2020, man, this one rocked me. Relationship with Christ, that was at the back burner. That was at the bottom of the list for me. And it's time to, to go, you know what? Let's reflect on this last year and it's time to make some changes when we come to 2021. Because he's the Messiah, he's God. And he's deserving of my worship to where I fall on the feet like the wise men do and declare him and offer him gifts. And those gifts are my life. And I allow that to impact and, and guide me and direct me. And so wherever you're at, if you're backslidden and you've fallen away and you're coming back in, you accept his grace and your mercy and you begin to walk in the newness of life. And if you need help with that, we have a ministry called Discipleship here where we have men and women who would love to mentor you, love to walk through the next six months with you. would love to provide an environment of love, confidentiality, support, and encouragement to help you continue in your strong foundation. I just met with a guy this morning that I met up here whose wife is delivering a baby. He got discipled here seven years ago. He went away after college for a job and he's now back and he's like, I wanna be a mentor again because of the impact that this ministry had upon my life and the foundation it set for my walk with Jesus. That could be you. We could help you in this area and we would love to do that. If you're thriving your walk with Christ, keep going. Keep growing. Keep the reason for the Christmas season at the center of your focus, that where God becomes a baby and is birthed, and 33-some years later, he heads to the cross to redeem you. And it's a great reason to celebrate this time. Let's take